previously on Blockbuster. Come on, Jim. Sorry, I was somewhere else. Need you here, Jim. Don't you think you're capable of bigger things than driving trucks? Yeah, I know, Dad. I'll figure it out. Can I help you? Uh, three for Star Wars. <laughs> this is awesome. So cool. We can ask them to invest. Wait, invest in what? Xenogenesis. You want to shoot it? Yeah. Somebody will eventually take notice. Listen, I saw a job listing for a production assistant, a, a guy named Roger Corman. That sounds just about perfect. I'll get you in too. I'm Matt Schrader, and Blockbuster starts now. Spring 1980. The art department workshop of Roger Corman's New World Pictures. Hey, do you work here? Oh, hey, man, I'm actually... Yeah, uh... I'm Jim. Listen, can you go paint that wall? James held out a bucket of paint and a paintbrush. I'm, I'm, I'm here for an interview. Oh. Well, nice to meet you. Uh, Jim Cameron. Hey, man, Bill Paxton. Bill Paxton was a struggling actor, hoping to work the graveyard shift so he could keep his days open for auditions. James obliged. Uh, can you start tonight? Yeah, man, sure, thank you. Uh, as in right now? Oh, uh, yeah. You're hired. Welcome to New World Pictures. I'll get your paperwork later. Uh, okay, can you grab this can and paint that wall? Yeah, man. This is Blockbuster. The story of James Cameron. Episode 2. Roger Corman's New World Pictures knew it catered to a niche audience. Many of its movies were low-budget knockoffs of bigger hits, B-movies with more sex, nudity, and bloody violence. The studio operated from an old lumberyard. It wasn't glamorous, but to James, it was a perfect place to hone his skills hands-on, with little risk of failing. He was already spending long days here, drawing, building, painting. James pitched the team film techniques straight out of his research at the USC library. This was his big chance, and he had to impress. And the big man himself, producer Roger Corman, was taking note. James was getting more and more responsibility, taking the initiative on things that needed to get done, and putting anyone and everyone in the lumberyard to work. Hey, you. Me? Do you work here? Can I give you something to do? No, I'm... Or do you want to work here? I can use the help. No, I'm the composer, writing the music. Oh, Jamie, Jamie Horner. Oh, you're Jamie, Jim Cameron. Nice to meet you. Jamie Horner was a 27-year-old music theory teacher at UCLA, just getting started as a composer on the upcoming film Battle Beyond the Stars. This was the first meeting between two creative geniuses about to come into their own. The shop's in there, if you want to have a look. Oh, yes, I actually would. Come on in. We got some of the ships in here, just kludging those up a little with all the little details. Oh, yes. Amazing. James was still new here, but was meeting everyone and making good impressions. Even better than putting in your time, James thought, was putting in the effort. This studio had jump-started the careers of directors he felt were far more talented than he'd ever be. Francis Ford Coppola, Martin Scorsese, and Ron Howard. 
They had undeniable filmmaking talent. James knew he'd have to make up what he lacked by working twice Hello? as hard as anyone else. Hello? Hello, I'm looking for the model shop. Poking her head through the warehouse door was a 24-year-old brunette with blue eyes, Roger's new assistant, Gail Ann Hurd, a recent Stanford graduate just starting at New World. She was here to check on the art department's progress. Hi, uh, can I help you? Yes, I'm here for Roger, looking for the model shop. Sure, I'm Jim. Gail. Here, I'll uh, show you around. They immediately had a spark of professional chemistry and maybe something more. He walked her through all the miniatures for the spaceships. See the little pipes and vents and rivets and things? All the details? Yeah. I think that's what really sells these as real in camera, so people think it's life-size. I call it kludging yeah. it up. There's so much of it here, so these, these are done. Just about, yeah. Gail was writing up a report for Roger on the progress of all the models. James seemed to be on top of everything and knew what everyone was doing. That's Wild Bill over there. Bill! Cameron! Hey there, Bill Paxton. Hi, Gail. Nice to meet you. Yeah, you too. Gail works for Roger. Oh, cool. Why do they call you Wild Bill? Because <laughs> I'm a wild man. Huh. It's because he's big in his gestures and how he talks. Ah. He's an actor. Oh, thanks, Chief. I can see that. Oh, is Cameron showing off his clues? I painted that one right there, that cardboard fast food box. Looks like you missed a spot. Man, that's just the first coat of paint. This guy takes no prisoners. I can see that, too. Oh, hey, see you around, Gail. You, too. And I'll be back for the second coat, boss. Don't you touch it. <laughs> I mean it. Hands off. Okay, okay. <laughs> Natural performer, don't you think? Oh, no question. Wait, so he works for you? Well, yeah, sort of, uh... You're the production designer. Oh, no, no. Uh, I'm just a model builder of the miniatures. <laughs> oh, I, I just assumed be well, because... <laughs> not yet, anyway. Maybe you should be. James quickly became good friends with Gail, Bill, and Jamie as he continued to rise up the ranks. Sure enough, when the art team fell behind on Battle Beyond the Stars, James was promoted to the role of art director. More work for the same pay, but also a chance to prove himself as a leader. And on Gail's personal recommendation, Roger would promote James to production designer on the next film, Galaxy of Terror. It was a horror movie, inspired by and in some ways a knockoff of Ridley Scott's recent thriller, Alien. James worked harder than ever, exhausting himself and pulling all-nighters until he felt he'd created designs that would truly blow people away. Jim? Especially Roger. That's really remarkable work. And so far, it was working. Hey, Gail. Good morning. Hey, Jim. Congratulations on the promotion. Oh, thanks. Shish, you look like crap. Well, it was a <laughs> long night. You did sleep, right? Ah, uh, a couple hours. Jim, did you even go home? There's a perfectly good cot here. <laughs> Jim, you're insane. There's a lot to do. The cot was actually a gurney, a prop from one of Roger's movies that James would pull in to crash for a few hours of sleep. Listen, is Roger here yet? Just got in. Come on in, Jim. Oh, well, <laughs> go right ahead. Uh, He's in a good mood. Thank you. Come on in. How are things looking? Oh, great. Really great. You're going to love the set. Looks like a million bucks. I'm sure it does. Hey, Roger, I'm so appreciative of the opportunity here the last few weeks. And Yes, uh, yes. Uh, congratulations on the new title. 
Production designer. I'm excited, sir. Thank, th thank you. Thank you. So, uh, let's talk about my salary. Um, okay. James' initiative had suited him well, but after two years and several promotions, he felt right now was the time to ask for more money. What are you making now? 200 a week. Well, let's make it 300. Uh, thank you, sir, but, uh... James was still tight on money, making far less than minimum wage considering the long hours spent here. He'd often have ramen noodles for lunch, just to pinch pennies. But he knew now was the time to assert himself. Well, what did the other guy get, the, the last production designer? Mmm, seven fifty a week. He had a lot more experience, though. Yeah, but you fired him. The last guy fucked up. Yes, we had to get rid of him. I won't fuck up. Look, Jim, that's a big jump. How about... 400. That's my promise. You want me to do the same job, I want the same money. Roger saw a rare potential in James, not only to dream up designs, but to execute seemingly impossible tasks flawlessly and bring out the best in everyone around him. Damn, son. Roger knew James was worth every penny. Okay. Okay? 750 a week. Oh, that's that's great. Thank you. James had nearly quadrupled his salary. You won't regret it. I know. That's why I'm giving it to you. <laughs> and, uh, Roger, I don't think they're doing all they could with the special effects shots. I want to be second unit director. What do you mean, we don't have a second unit? No, but I think we should. I'll shoot at night, and we'll get really nice-looking inserts and cutaway shots. I don't know, Jim. Uh, plus, I've already looked into this. It'll shorten your shooting days with first unit. Uh oh It'll pay for itself. That was the part Roger needed to hear. All right. <laughs> Second unit director. Thank you. Start tomorrow. This is going to be great. Go put your group together. Now get out of my office <laughs> before you end up getting that, too. I'll get right to work. In just a few short years, James had completely reinvented himself from truck driver going to see Star Wars to production designer and second unit director of a Roger Corman movie. James felt this break in his career would finally convince his dad he was on the right path. Hello? Hi, Mom. Oh, hi, Jim. Guess who's the new second unit director of a Roger Corman picture? Second unit. Thought he was already a director. No, he was an art director. Now he's a director. Second unit director, Mom. What's a second unit? Well, it's all the cutaway shots of things, you know. Not the actors, but just some of the other shots. It's working with a camera now. But you're a director. Well, for second unit, yes. Ah, here, tell your father. Since high school, James had had a strained relationship with his dad, Philip who disapproved of James' interest in fiction. The film industry was a crapshoot, a waste of James' real potential and natural talent in science and engineering. Philip felt a fatherly duty not to condone James making what he felt was a major career mistake. Hello, son. Hey, Dad, I, uh, I've got a job directing the second unit. Well, that's something, I suppose, right? Yeah, Dad. I, I, I went in and said, Roger, you know how hard I'm working and I want to be paid what I'm worth, and he said... You want uh, one of those nudie movies, right? 
Philip was straight-laced, and Roger Corman B-movies had a reputation for having lots of nudity and sex scenes. Galaxy of Terror was no exception. It had a graphic scene with a giant space worm and a naked woman. It was intended to be unsettling, but James couldn't tell his dad that. No, it's, 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 no, it's, it's a real movie. It's, it's a thriller, you know, scary movie. It's like the, the movie Alien. Uh, did you see that? Oh, well, it's a, a pretty big movie, uh, Dad. Uh, I have maybe a hundred people or so all working on this. Uh, well, that's good you're directing now, then. Oh, it's, it's second unit, Dad, but it's, it's more like the cutaways and shots of things, you know, uh, close-ups of special effects. Suddenly, James realized how ridiculous his description of his job must sound to Philip. His dad had spent his whole life working blue-collar jobs in a paper factory. James wanted to make his dad proud, but they were speaking two different languages. Well, that's great, son. Are you doing all right for money? Yeah, dad, uh, do, do, doing all right for money. That uh, actually uh, comes with a big... There's uh, not many people like you in the world, son, who can do all you can do. What do you, what do you mean? Well, in school, your studies, you're capable of more. You are always capable of more. I just... I don't want to see you wasting it on the wrong things. I'm not. I'm... working. Just saying, why don't you finish your math classes? Get your degree. Get back on your feet. I'm fine, Dad. I'm... I'm figuring it out. It made James angry and more determined than ever to prove his father wrong. Okay, now. Talk to you soon, son. Give my best to mom. To his friends at New World Pictures, like Bill Paxton, Gail Ann Hurd, and of course Randy Frakes, James seemed like a man on a mission. He worked harder than anyone, yet somehow never seemed to burn out. He was intimidating to some, but his work, now as a second unit director as well, was elevating the whole film. Okay, bring in the arm. Jackson, bring that tray. One of his first special effects shots was a disgusting one, a cutaway in the film to a bloody severed arm. They designed it to look just like one of the main character's arms. Oh, that's really horrifying. Per perfect, great, great job. Thanks. Uh, could use a little more blood here, though. Uh, and the worms? Who has, who has the worms? Right here. Bring them over. The shot called for maggots swarming the severed arm, so they were using half-inch mealworms sold at pet stores as reptile food out of a 20-pound box. Do you want me to just dump the whole box? Oh, God, those are disgusting. Oh, excellent. Ugh. You, uh, want to look away? Oh, gross, Jim. You're not going to just reach in there. James plunged his hand, wrist-deep, into the worms like it was a tub of popcorn, next to Randy, who was manning one of their cameras. Oh, the... Oh, Jim. What? I can't believe you just... I'm gonna be sick. James walked over and started sprinkling the mealworms on the severed arm. There you go. There you are. The thing is, it has to look organic and natural. We, we can't just dump them. We have to place them. Uh... That angle okay, Randy? Yep, nice and revolting. Maybe a few more on top? Ah, yeah. And uh, there. And you should go right here. That's nice. Okay. Oh. Yeah, that's brilliant. Oh, 
Jim, you are going to wash that hand, right? Why aren't they moving? This is supposed to be disgusting. Seems pretty disgusting, Jim. Well, they're not moving. How much time do we have? James was shooting early in the morning as second unit, and he had to be wrapped before the first unit came in. It was always a tight squeeze. Okay, uh, I have an idea. Let's zap them. How do we do that? Electricity. Run a current through them. What? They'll be fine. They won't get hurt. All of a sudden, James' basic knowledge of the sciences came in handy. Methyl cellulose. M methyl what? The alien slime. It, it conducts electricity. Hey, guys, can you get me a gallon of the uh, alien slime and uh, uh, a metal plate of some kind to put it on? As the crew scrambled, two producers looked on from the back of the stage, impressed by James' vision to command something so small. Okay, let's get the arm onto this plate. James stripped a power cable from an old broken appliance so the two copper ends were in the alien slime. Then he poured even more slime over the maggots in the arm. All right, on my action, I want you guys to plug the cord into the power outlet. What? Trust me, it's safe. Doesn't look safe, Jim. See that other cable? It's a ground wire. I have it running outside into the ground. This is 100% safe, all right? The crew looked at each other. All right. And uh, camera ready? Ready, Jim. Randy, roll camera. Camera rolling. Let's juice him. Action. The mealworms jumped to life, wriggling, squirming, slithering on the severed arm. It was movie magic conjured up by this brilliant 25-year-old special effects wizard. Huh, that's good. Cut. The two men in the back of the room couldn't hear the electricity stop. But their jaws dropped when James yelled, cut, and the mealworm stopped moving. What the? I, How did he do that? I don't, I don't know. Oh my God. Yari, hold on. Imagine what he could do with actors. Uh, excuse me, you are Jim Cameron? Uh, yes. Uh, Ovidio Asenatus, movie producer. We are making a film. I'd love to take you to lunch to talk about it. James and the Italian B-movie producer would go to Zucky's Deli in Santa Monica, where James was offered his first job as a director, the ultra-low-budget sequel Piranha 2. It would shoot in Jamaica and with a film crew based out of Rome. But like always, James leaped at the opportunity, this time to become a full-fledged director. He sold all of his things, said goodbye to his friends in L.A., and left for Jamaica with only a few suitcases and some art supplies, determined to make the most of his big shot, which would end before it even began. Stay tuned for a preview of the next episode of Blockbuster and a short conversation about this episode. Hey, I'm Ross Marquand. I play the role of James Cameron in Blockbuster. Thanks so much for listening, and be sure to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks. Whoa! Hey, what? Don't let Whoa. go! On the next episode of Blockbuster. Get the bikes! Hey! Young James orchestrates a brilliant, if dangerous, We're experiment. Fire trucks, get out of the way! Oh my god, Dad's gonna kill me. I'm getting what you asked for! No, you are not, Jim! James and his producer come to blows over Piranha 2. This is not working out! and a fever dream of a terrifying future scares James out of his senses. What, me? No, 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 no. Oh, come on, come on now. 
Come on. Oh, God damn it. Ah, uh, come on, Jim. That's coming up on episode three of Blockbuster, the story of James Cameron. I'm series creator Matt Schrader. Hey, this is Peter Bavitz, the sound designer. I'm Fernando Arroyo Lascurain, the composer. And this is our creator chat about episode two you just heard from Blockbuster, the story of James Cameron. In this episode, James has worked his way up to being a second unit director and meeting all these future collaborators along the way, Bill Paxton, Jamie Horner, Gail Ann Hurd, uh, of course, Roger Corman, who he successfully lobbies for a raise. Uh, we'll have a bonus interview with Roger coming soon to uh, to talk about that. But the scene I loved from this episode is The Worms. We talk about that more with James' lifelong friend Randy Frakes in this week's bonus interview. Mm. Um, but Peter, can you take us inside some of that sound design oh, yeah. here? There's a lot of stuff going on. And it's exciting stuff, right? Because you're bringing something that's like tiny dead or maybe partially alive worms. You're like making them the centerpiece of a scene. So it's it's really fun because there's a lot of squishes and zaps and you're trying to make uh, make it into a, a living organism of its own, like a Frankenstein type of thing. But in parallel, it's also really about James, his brilliance his, and the danger that he's putting everyone into. And it, it's really a fun scene because you get to experience this this very basic excitement that, you know, children have and kids have when, when they play. It's like kind of that type of situation. That That's what we're trying to evoke. Because he is taking his first steps kind of of, of his oh, filmmaking yeah. career right here. And also, if you listen to the special episode from last week with Bill Wisher, uh, this is not the first and last time James does these things. I mean, he, <laughs> together with Randy, almost electrocuted Bill onset of xenogenesis so it's not like this guy learns like he's trying to like be the master of electricity on set i guess but it's a really fun thing and and to be serious it's a fun scene to create and and it's a nice arc to have within the episode of of this change of shift of emotions there and he's already had his electricity practice run so uh now now it's for real and he knows what he's doing Fernando, the music here is starting to develop more and more. Clearly, James' relationship with his parents is, is a strong influence on him at this point. Yes, as we develop James's relationship with his parents, hopefully the musical themes reflect that in a way that connects us more to his parents, his dad's disappointment of him not being a scientist and his mom's constant support of James's more artistic side. Um, we also see the development of his relationships with friends he's made at Roger Corman's production house, which mm -hmm, will become right. much more important later in the series, specifically his relationship with Gail mm -hmm. and Bill Paxton. And finally, that last sequence that Peter was just talking about, sapping the worms, I wanted to represent musically a bit of this magic that happens when somebody has a truly genuine idea. And here's where we see really James's instinct as a pioneer filmmaker and using his knowledge of the sciences to do something that ended up being truly magical and caught the attention of other people. Musically, I decided to choose something that wasn't necessarily like in an even meter. It's in 7-8 and find a way to kind of make this scientific discovery structure through those sounds and that meter. 
and the effect of that meter emotionally is 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 what how would you i would say what that created creates a sense of unexpected pulse mm-hmm. for most listeners and what it creates is the sense of uh, the gears moving forward. I loved that piece when I first heard it, and it's it's a really cool little piece that I think paints what was one of my favorite scenes that we've uh, we've heard so far in this series. The other story that I found interesting in researching these early days at Roger Corman's studio was uh, just how fast everything had to move. Um, it became a crash course in in set design for James. They were shooting these little B movies so quickly that the uh, the paint on the sets wasn't even dry. And uh, there was even one film Roger shot, I think, inside of a week at one point. It might have been before James. Battle Beyond the Stars w- was never that fast, but there was still a lot to coordinate. You know, that was one of their their biggest projects up until that point that Roger Corman had done. Mm-hmm. And uh, James was essentially overseeing the sets of a whole movie that was supposed to be similar or be kind of the the B movie knockoff of uh, mm-hmm. of Star Wars. So there's a lot of pressure on him there, and. At the time, Roger Corman, I asked him about this when uh, when I interviewed with him, but at the time, Roger Corman would drive in in his little sports car to oversee the camera crews and the actors as they're coming in, and he'd visit the soundstage that James and his team were uh, were painting, and they'd always be on set still, and Roger didn't like that. <laughs> and so I came across one story, and I'm not sure if this is true because Roger didn't seem to recall this, but several other people have mentioned this of Roger telling James that this is unacceptable. You guys can't be still doing this. And uh, and James felt like he was in trouble, wasn't sure what to do. And the, score, the, the story goes that Gail basically told him, no, no, don't worry, Roger just does that. So, so who knows yeah. the real truth there? But either way, James learned how to play a bit of politics from this. He rounded everyone up on his crew um, the next night, and he said, We're going to build a warning system. We'll call it a Roger drill. Somebody's going to be on the lookout for his sports car and immediately radio in on the walkie talkies. And then inside the soundstage, everyone, you know, no matter what you're doing, drop it, uh, get everything off the stage. It, you know, even if you're halfway through painting something, just leave it. It needs to be totally (laughs) empty. So when Roger comes in, he sees everyone's gone. He'll just assume that the work is done and won't hopefully won't look too closely. So from that point on, Roger never scolded James again for not having sets ready. He'd walk in and see the sets were built overnight and totally constructed, and he'd say, this looks pretty good, great work. And uh, then when he walked through, that whistle would blow, and everyone would come back to finish painting and finish up the set. It was a little bit difficult to confirm how much of that is actually true, but it sure seems to be and shows a little bit of that kind of James Cameron spirit and that Mm -hmm. leadership that's starting to come together. Yeah, and this early training, I guess, that James had from Roger was something that molded James into, you know, who he eventually became. And you'll learn in the following episodes who he really became. That'll do it for us uh, right now for for all of us here. Fernando Arroyo Lascarain. Thank you. Peter Bavietz. Thank you. I'm Matt Schrader. Be sure to rate and review Blockbuster wherever you get your podcasts and uh, share us with a friend. Share. And we'll see you again after episode three. Blockbuster is written and narrated by me, Matt Schrader. Sound design by Peter Bavietz. Original music by Fernando Arroyo Lascarain. Produced by Elena Bavietz. Starring Ross Marquand. For more on Blockbuster, follow us on social media at BlockbusterPod. Or visit us online to support the creators at GetBlockbuster.com. Blockbuster is an original production of Epiclef Media.